0: Hello and welcome to the Sellerman Podcast with me, Sam Wilkin. Uh, This time I'm speaking to Matt Chatfield. Uh, Matt Chatfield runs an organisation, although from what I can tell it's him and some sheep down in the West Country, uh, called The Cornwall Project. Uh, They're on Instagram as The Cornwall Project and he is doing a lot of really fascinating things in what he describes as a low-input farming system. So low-input rather than regenerational. In fact, he has some interesting points of view on that particular subject. Um so Matt's background uh is really interesting. He was in London for many years uh from a farming background uh in, in down in Cornwall, Devon and uh he he found himself being drawn back to the farm. He went home and realized there was all this incredible produce. Uh, In Cornwall, that wasn't making it to London for logistical reasons, so he got himself a a refrigerated van and through lots of connections that he'd made up in London with various brilliant chefs like uh, Brett from the Ledbury and James Lowe at Floor, Lyles, uh, people like that he discovered there was a real appetite for great produce. Um, this is at a time when people were kind of coming back from places like Noma and really buying into the idea of provenance and uh, you know the origin story of, of particular ingredients. So he supplied that need for many years, in fact to the point where he even uh, set up a pub in North London that, that served exclusively products that he'd sourced from down in the West Country. And then after a while, what he really wanted to do was head back head back home and uh, start working on the family farm. He describes it as a small holding, about 80 acres. And he discovered regenerative agriculture at that point. And now he produces what he calls cull yaw, which, um, although it sounds rather romantic, is perhaps a a sort of slightly uh, morbid uh, name for his product, but it works. It describes the ewes, so yaw is a colloquialism for ewes, Uh, so sheep uh, that that are no longer um, lambing, uh, and I'll sort of pass their sell by date in a traditional sense. And then he treats them a little bit like a Berico pork, in that he gives them a good life and he fattens them up and they walk around a lot and eat delicious grass. And then, in fact, they are sent up to, again, some of the best restaurants in the land as Cull yore um, So he's a really interesting guy. And we kick things off with his sort of first footsteps into regenerative agriculture. So here
1: he is, Matt Chatfield from the Cornwall Project. You know, I came across this thing called regenerative agriculture. We'd done all this work in London, and there were just three really big worries for me. And you know, and it's probably the same for um, cheese production, really. Um, The three worries were the plant based community were getting louder and louder, the environmental um, impacts of ruminants, you know, like CO2 emissions or methane were getting louder. And then the one that really was getting louder was rewilding. So, I mean, that's the three areas that I thought. I mean, at the time, I called them threats, but I do generally now perceive them as opportunities. So what I then thought, I looked at these three areas, and I thought, right, it just naturally happened. Because I was on my little houseboat, and then what I would do is if I found someone I was interested in doing you know, doing interesting farming, I would drive off and go and see them. So I was spending a lot of time on the houseboat, looking at YouTube, and then going off and, and seeing really interesting farmers. Um, and it just naturally happened then that speaking to mum and she was like happy for me to go back and experiment on the, on the small holding. Um, but I thought, right, if I'm going to farm, I'm going to try and do something that, it, you know, I, I mean, I spend a lot of time on Twitter debating people and I'm never nasty, but I do genuinely want to learn from people. So I, 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 I debate rewilders I debate, debate environmentalists, I debate plant-based people. And I thought, right, can I come up with a farming method that actually I can actually win debates? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. And I, I've learned how these people debate. And they, it's always the same sort of questions. And I was like, right. So now, you know, I've created a farming system and I've been doing it a year now. And the way it's heading, it's, it's heading where, you know, I've done more than I ever thought I could in a year. But with the things that I've got happening in the next year, um, I think, yeah, I, I, yeah, the only issue I've really got is that I do actually end up um, killing my ruminants. But what I do is... I spent a lot of time in Extremadura with um, some incredible Hamon people, some of pig suppliers, and I've always viewed that as the the best mate, meat um, in the world. Um, and I now have got a very good idea of how they produce it. But essentially, if you want world class meat, you need an animal that's walked around a lot. And with the Birico pig, pigs, you know, they're basically walking around in Dehesa, scratching a living, scratching, you know, they just, you know, there's really not much in the meat. It's very arid, you know, it's too, it's extremes of temperature. But then suddenly, I think after about 18 months they weigh 80 kilos and then the acorns arrive, they put them in the acorn fields um, and they put on about 80 kilos in about four months. So basically (coughs) if you want world-class meat, you need good genetics of an animal, but you need something that's walked around a lot to get the flavour into the muscle and then you need to put a lot of fat on as quickly as possible at the end. So I just suddenly thought, right, wait a minute, like sheep. (laughs) Um, If you've got sheep, they've probably... Sheep you know just by the nature are going to be grass fed pretty well all their lives they 've walked around a lot um and then if you can put fat on the end, so I just had like a eureka moment really so what happens in um in sheep systems is um a sheep will you know it's actually it's one of those animals that probably has the, as close to a wildlife as as you can regards like a you know domesticated animal so basically they'll be they 'll be running on flocks um they 'll be out in the fields. They'll be running with a the ram, um, they'll get pregnant, they'll have their lamb. Um, they will then, that lamb will be on them for like four or five months, it's then naturally weaned. So you're not taking a, a lamb away, you know, the you know, so you're not, it's not like with a dairy cow where you're taking the calf away. So I quite like that. But a lamb every year, say a farmer's got 100 sheep, um every year it will replace about 15% of that flock. So if you've got 100 sheep, every year the farm will be right, 15 of those sheep. You know, for one reason or another, they're not fit for breeding from again, um, and that maybe they've had mastitis, or they've had trouble lambing, or you know they've had something go wrong, or, or maybe they've got a teeth issue, which means they they can't sort of graze properly. So 15% tend to then go straight into the food chain, and, and to not a particularly nice part of the food chain. So you've got these poor sheep, 15% of them. So you've got 15 sheep, and they're normally taken straight to a, a market where they probably just wean their lambs. They're probably not looking great. They're quite thin. And then they're put into a pen and they're normally bought by abattoirs. And then they're normally the next day, you know, basically killed and either end up as kebabs or they end up as pet food. So I sort of thought, right, well, let's try and put some meat on. Let's try and get these animals and give them a decent retirement and let's put them on pasture for like six months, see if we can put some fat on them. And then, you know, and then where the special bit is, there's two special parts to it that were really... Well, one was really lucky. One is that after about five or six years, the most of the sheep are like, say, five or six years old. After five or six, they stop producing lanolin, or they produce a lot less. So lanolin is that, like, waterproof substance that comes from the glands. It comes through the skin and slowly goes in the wall, and it basically makes it a lot more waterproof. Um, but it's also what gives that really tacky flavor when you when you do have like lamb fat or sheep fat but after five or six years that disappears then the other complaint about um you know i, I mean i actually call it cull because that's the name of it um the colloquial term for it in devon where my where we've got this family farm so it's called a cull Your is devon for you and cull is because it's going to be cold so it's um okay. and i thought one of my debates with a plant-based person he said to me you farmers, you know, you, you hide behind really pretty terms like retired dairy, dairy cow, you know, what do you call it what it was? And I'm like, right, okay, cool. I'm going to call it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I actually find that's, that's why I originally started using it. Mum was horrified. I worked with Warrens the um, and they spent a lot of money on a, a state-of-the-art dry aging facility, you know, based on the success of London. So we've got like about five dry aging chambers in there. So what we started doing was actually aging them for, for five weeks on the bone. And I just don't think anyone's ever done that. So basically, we took it. The first chef who had a proper try of it was a chap called Jeremy Okoyi. And Jeremy's a very special chap. You know, like, an incredible palate. He's travelled the world, tasting meat, really obsessive. Like, very geeky. I don't think you would mind me saying that. And I took him some to, him to try. And obviously, he's expecting something really tacky and something really tough. But because there isn't that tackiness because of the lack of lanolin, and then we'd aged it for five weeks, and the aging process, you know is all about controlling the enzymes so it breaks down the meat um and you know basically makes it really tender but also you're taking away moisture to improve the flavor anyway i it was actually the first time i'd had it as well so i had it with Germany, and like it's the exact opposite of what you'd expect it is just the most clean sort of sheep flavor with no lanolin and because we'd aged it it was really tender so then it was like and i genuinely was like Oh Christ! I think, like, I think, I think I might be right on this. And Jeremy, you know, the first thing you said was, "Matt, this is your first go to it. This, this is already up there with Hamon um, and, you know, uh, Wagyu." You know, and I was like, "Oh Christ!" So, yeah. So that was a bit of a shock, but it obviously gave me a lot of confidence. So now, so now what I'm trying to do is, I'm happy with the potential product. Now we're just trying to make it better and better. So now what I'm really doing now is trying to. My my rules are i want the first rule is the sheep must have a wonderful retirement um that's the most important second is the um flavor so it has to have really good flavor and the third is that i must look after the environment you know it must be a balance for the environment so i think if you get all those three working together Mm. then you're on something ruminants if you graze them properly you can actually put a lot more carbon in the atmosphere than they give off so my whole system is actually now measured. By the Rothamsted Institute, um, who are a team of scientists based quite closely, so they're actually measuring my carbon sequestration. So they're actually measuring how much carbon I'm putting in the soil, which is pretty brilliant. Um, and I'm very much into something called silver pasture, and silver pasture is basically it's what they used to do. They've now you know it's just basically um, like woodland grazing, but you're essentially using trees as part of your farming system. And Project Drawdown, which is a team of scientists in America, have come up with a hundred ways of um, trying to make money whilst putting carbon in the soil. And silver pasture is number nine on Project Jordan. And that essentially means I'm now very lucky that we've got an ancient coppice, which no one's even looked at for 100, literally 108 years. So my family has been there for 400 years on the same farm. Um, and this coppice, they stopped using 180 years ago. And I've now gone in there with a the chainsaw and now trying to work out a way of making that coppice, you know, re- restarting it, redoing it. I've got an environmental background. I was also a countryside ranger for a bit as well. So when you start looking at soil, everything is about soil and just the complexity of what's happening underneath our feet is just insane. And no one's ever going to know everything. You just can't, but you can just, all you can do really is we'll look at the broad principles. The broad principles are that if you want to get loads of nourishment into plants so that it gives flavor to meat and it, you know, it provides a lot of health benefits, You've got to get the soil working. If you get the soil working, you need to just feed it. And the way you feed it is through photosynthesis, which you know turns carbons into sort of sugars. And that in turn feeds the microorganisms in the soil. And the microorganisms that you know, you then turn work with the fungi, and the fungi in the roots, everything just starts working together. and just means that the roots are able to draw up you know, different minerals and take it up and then feed that to ruminants. On a woodland floor, I mean, in my fields, I probably, I'm trying to improve the number of diversity of the plants in the field. you we might've got like, say, 10 different species. Um, but in the woodland, I mean, I did a, a photo yesterday on my Instagram feed and like just in one little space in the coppice, because we've now let light in. I mean, there must be like 50 plants just in one photo. It's just insane. And if you've got all those different roots working together, they all in turn work with fungi in a different way. And they in turn break down more nutrients. So the more diversity you've got happening in root systems underneath the soil, then the more nutrients it draws up so that for me nature's looked after and the flavors just can be absolutely phenomenal so so it's really exciting times and and i probably can't say too much about it now but i think i've just possibly signed well i'm in the process of writing up a proposal which is going to be really exciting we're possibly not going to go for coppicing we're going to go for pollarding with and look, basically pollarding is you cut trees about eight feet above the ground and then they they spring up because we've got like a deer issue. So that means the deer might be able to reach you. You get all these wonderful branches. And I'll probably be chopping some of those branches off and using this tree hay for the, for the sheep. And then we might actually fence off our entire wood and then bring in the red rubies to crash in and do a bit of stuff and then pollard the whole mm. thing. So we've got light coming in.
0: What I'm hearing about regenerative agriculture is it feels like, A, well, two things. A, it, it feels actually like you're describing quite an ancient way of approaching farming. Absolutely. But but also what what you're doing is up until very recently. So speaking to a, a cheesemaker, Johnny Crickmore, uh, who makes Baron Bygod in Suffolk, he's wanting to move in this direction. But obviously he's inherited a farm from his from his father. And his father was very much of, of that generation, which was all about, you know, chemicals and, you know, controlling nature. So trying to be as controlling as possible. What you're describing, yeah. it's almost like you're kind of, almost like surfing the wave, if you like. You're kind of just yeah. nudging, it, nudging it in a direction rather than forcing it down a path it doesn't want to go. It's, it's really fascinating to hear just the way you speak about it, actually. It's very kind of, you're almost like, yeah, it's persuasion.
1: I think, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm really interested. Yeah, that's great you've said that. Mum actually bought like a small farm in, in Cornwall. And we're very lucky there's a river called the River Inny um and we're not wealthy by any means i can assure but the opposite i can assure you but we're very lucky we've got like a salmon um, a run of salmon going out that river so from the age of 10 i used to go down to the river every day for like you know for hours and hours on my own fishing but it's just got me obsessed with nature so i'm just i'm really lucky where like i'll be with people all the time i'll just be seeing things that they sort of can't you know just insects flying around birds and what i've found is you know, I've, I've learned a lot from, say, regenerative agriculture people, and this is where I'll speak slightly out of turn. I sort of think there's still, like, a tendency to think that you can do better than nature. So people come up around with all sorts of concoctions to put on their soil. You know, they're doing fermenting. They're doing all sorts of things. Yeah. But I think I just spend, like, two hours every day just sitting there looking at animals, looking at birds, looking at insects. And they're they're the things that are telling you what's really going on. Um, and I think that's... So, on, so I've sort of almost stop listening to the regenerative agriculture folks for a bit i do listen to the conventional farmers because they actually make money which is important but i spend all my time now just talking to conservationists so for example i've got a guy coming out um but well, i've had one of the the kiwi people come out this week already and he's the one who's come up with this Ponarding idea so i'm learning so much from him he's incredible his knowledge on the environment and everything is just phenomenal and then i've got a guy who works at Eden? Well, works worked at the Eden Project since the very beginning. He's coming out next week to look at it. Like they're the people I'm really learning from. The people who are, who just they know. You know, if you've got a certain insect, that's going to tell you something what's happening in the system. If you've got certain plants, you know. Just to give you an example, um, I'm obsessed with birdwatching, and every year, right tour, which is on Bobby Moore, you get a million starlings um, come in from like um, Eastern Europe, and they come and they do you know huge murmurations every night. So I went out every night last year just watching these murmurations. You've got peregrine falcons coming in, you've got buzzards, you've got goshawks, you know, it's a real sight. And then I noticed on my land, I, I basically pushed my sheep quite hard last year in the winter because we had a lot of grass and I wanted to, you know, when, when the grass, soil is wet, you need to move around sheep a lot, but they push in the grass and then the worms pick it up and then they start feeding the soil. And so I started doing that. And then what I noticed was, um, you'd, like, you'd have a bare field, you'd put your sheep in, and then within like an hour, you'd have about a thousand starlings fly mm-hmm. in. And one of the big sort of things with genetic agriculture is one of the is basically a lot of people use chickens, follow in. Um, but you know, in our area it's quite difficult to have chickens because there's a lot of foxes. However, I was just suddenly like, wait a minute, there's a reason starlings are coming all the way here, and they must and nature doesn't just let anyone have a free ride, you know, like so. These starlings, as soon as the sheep came in, they would poo. They'd also put their footprints and reveal all sorts of things. So the starlings were just following the sheep. And I, I'd be there for an hour and see about a thousand starlings. Over the day, you must have got, I reckon, like 10,000 starlings must have come on that field. So you've probably got the equivalent of, this is, again, my rough sons, but you've probably really got the equivalent of like a thousand chickens following that flock around all day. They're pooing, which, and bird poo is just incredible for the soil. They're also actually picking through all the sheep dung to pick out all the nasty little you know, bits of bobs that are in there. Um, but yeah, so so the nature thing is, you know, now I've got this coppice. It was just bare soil at the beginning of the year. And now, like, it's just crazy. So when I bring this Eden Project guy over next week, I mean, he he's going to, you know, I mean, we one of the nature guys came, you know, this guy who's really good with um, nature came in last week, and he's basically found a plant he just never expected to see. Like, it's, it can only grow in a real ancient woodland that hasn't been disturbed for 108 years. So now we just need to work in a way that, Sort of keeps what's there, but also increases it. And obviously, the best way of doing that is to keep a lot of trees standing, but also open it up so you know the light can get in, you know, to do to do it. Because it, if it, if a wood's totally shaded, obviously that means that you don't know, get much of an understory. So, so yeah, it's like uh But you know, at the end of the day, we are making. We found a market because I work at the wines. You know, we're now aging this product to perfection. I, I'm i getting better and better at, you know, working out how to put flavour into it. The sheep are getting a better and better retirement because I'm just providing all these pretty incredible habitats for them. Um, and we're actually getting very good profit from the other end. So you know, I'm basically within a year. You know, we're actually making money. I'm reinvesting that money. You know, I think our farm property hasn't been profitable for about 30 years, and then within a year, you know, me and mum working together. You know, like for example, mum's like 70, but yesterday, um. I decided we, we, you gather people to shear sheep, but I had 18 sheep, and they came in unsheared. I thought, right, I'm going to teach myself. So it's just like this is how funny it is. I'm we brought these 18 sheep in, um, and mum's mum's there with like YouTube showing like sheep demos. So on all these shearing videos, all these sheep shearers sheep tend to be very long-limbed, athletic people, um, and the sheep aren't that big. <laughs> but I'm I'm very short with very small limbs, and my sheep are huge. So like. I had to find sort of different ways of doing it because my arms just aren't long enough. But the other funny thing is like my sheep are... Because um, I buy them from other farmers. They've they, they um, they've obviously been owned by brilliant shepherds. You know, people have been doing it all their lives. And then they come to me. And like the first thing I do is I've got five very tame sheep. So I, I put my sheep, my tame ones in with them. And what you'll find within about two or three days, it just calms down all of the flock. They're suddenly... When you first get them, they run away from you. But will. But when I go in there, I go up to my tame ones. My tame ones are all come running up and they're all lovely. And then the rest of them are like, oh, this is a bit different. You know, it's like, um, and then I then tend to sort of lie down in the field for about an hour of a day just watching them and what they eat. You can just see these, I don't know, you can sort of sense like these sheep are thinking, all right, well, this, this guy's... What you're
0: describing is a lot of observation and a lot of kind of learning and, and, and allowing things to happen so that you can see how it pans out. And that sounds like that's the right way to go generally. But I think what's interesting is you comparing that with people who are coming up with these incredible sort of fermented cocktails and, you know, to put on the put yeah. on the soil, or this, that and the other. Yeah. Do you think there's an element where part of your comfort it takes confidence to go, do you know what, I'm just going to see what happens rather than yeah. feeling the need to control because there is this, yeah. you know, hangover yeah. from traditional farming where you feel like you need yeah. to control yeah. everything. Do you think part of that, because you've said, you know, you've done this all in a year, you, in a sense, a big part of the success, success you're, you're experiencing now is off the back of those years of work, building those relationships with restaurants so that now you can speak to, frankly, some of the best chefs in the world and go, yeah. I'm developing this product, would you like to see it? Which is actually not a conversation a lot of farmers would ever be able to have.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a brilliant observation. I mean, I think where I'm quite... I think where farmers start is at the beginning. I, I'm starting from the end, which is flavour. Um, there's a chap called Chris Jones. He's he's a phenomenal farmer. He's actually, he was part of the, when I went to the, uh, the conference like a year and a half ago, he he was talking about civil pasture. And he's like the most charismatic, crazy farmer. He's just a pretty, he was just like effing and blinding. Like, he was just the real character. And I decided then, right, I think I want that guy to be, I, I want to be his, um, not protégé, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd like him to be, you know, I'm going to get to know that guy. So I went and met him and I went down there and he, he said, right, Matt, right, do you want me to sum up everything I've learned in 50 years in one sentence? Okay. He said, right, if you look after the environment, the flavour will look after itself. Uh, and I was like, that is unreal. And that's so, so when he told me that, I was like, this is a guy who who knows what he's doing, he's done it, he's been there, he's actually like, um, you know, sort of pretty well behind the whole beaver revolution that's happening down here at the moment, Um, so once he taught me that, I was like, yeah, that's it. so I sort of think, I mean, I, there is, with the vacation, I vacation, mean, I've, I've, you know, been involved with a couple of consultants, you know, and, you know, not dismissing what they do, but there's still that same element of, like we need to sell you something to improve what you're doing you know we've got this incredible seaweed mixture or we've got um you know something that you can pour on your land and it's going to get everything working and and that may well be the best way to do it or you know we've got this incredible seed mix or but i'm like i just sort of think like what i'm now slowly turning towards talking what i'm doing really is what i found with the koyal by calling something koyal i'm actually speaking the farmer's language you know if you used to talk about a retired dairy cow you're speaking like a. A restaurant language you're not speaking a farmer's language so by using the word koyal you know i am speaking the farmer's language and i think with regenerative agriculture you know I, I love the concept of it but i do sort of think you're not really talking the farmer's language you may be talking like a, a new wave of farmer but you know i'm part of a farm community you know i, I sort of play cricket now with people i used to play cricket with 25 years ago they're all farmers so what i quite like calling it now is like a low input system and I think that's something that my butcher is really comfortable with as well. So I think low input is essentially you're you're you're, you're spending as little money as you can. You're putting as little, you know, you but you what? You, but the less money you put into agriculture, if you do sell something, then potentially the profit is higher. So that's sort of what I'm doing now is like a very low input system. Um, and the best way to have a low input system is just let nature do everything that I can.
0: No I I mean you laugh but I think that but that makes such clear not just kind of environmental sense but business sense if you you know there's people kind of you know my friend's an accountant his 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 business has just um you know uh, de- declined the offer to take up the lease on their central london office so all their all the accountants are now working from home and that's yeah. a massive overhead that everyone's gone oh yeah we don't actually need that anymore so yeah. i feel like there's a general cultural shift where we go god all these massive overhead lines that we've got do we really need to be paying loads of money frankly to big chemical companies to who are telling us how to farm when actually but i suppose the question though is you're doing this on a really small scale with a really high value product how do we how do we replicate or or seek to replicate what you're doing for for, for products that aren't just going into some of the best restaurants in the land so
1: what what happened with the the, the crisis was that i built up over like about eight months I built up a really strong business. So we were selling 10 sheep a week um, to the restaurants by the Warrens. Mm-hmm. And then the crisis happened. Um, and then because we aged for six weeks, I had 60 carcasses there. And my butcher, they had a lot of money outstanding. They, they had... A lot of meat hanging. Can you imagine? You know, they've got a very big business, and um, you know, so we're supplying a lot of restaurants. So they had a huge amount of meat hanging, and they also had to pay their farmers on time because you know we didn't have that. Look, the um, the, the bit of not. You know, it's probably the same with your cheese. You know, you you know, you can't not pay your farmers. You've got to. You know, so we had to keep everything opening. Um, but what I did, but I I basically asked my Instagram followers, and I genuinely. I just do Instagram really to keep myself from used. because you're out in the field. And I, I actually just, I love my own company, but I also just quite like having a bit of a laugh. So i generally just put something on social media just to entertain myself. And, um, and I don't mind coming across as a bit daft. But then I basically, you know, I had these 60 carcasses. So I just said, we, we, we're in trouble. My butcher's in trouble. We need to get rid of this meat. You know, we've got it hanging. Um, Would anybody interested in being and buying it? And, and they did. Like over three weeks, we sowed all of the carcasses Wow. And I was suddenly like, oh, crikey, like, this is the British public. Like, they, these people have been following me. they they really supported me. And it was just a really weird emotional time because everything was up in the air. All your mates, restaurants in London are going down. Everyone, you know, and everyone's like socially isolating. And my personal feeling is, for me, what's unique about my system is the more you buy, the more sheep I save from being killed straight away and actually give them a good retirement. And the more environmental benefits there are, so i personally think with the low input systems you could produce a lot of meat at a very high quality for not much money so i think and another area where this is where i do actually think it is regenerative agriculture i think what i'm doing i'm going to call it low input like natural farming but one person you really ought to speak to is a chap called fred price who um he's got 200 acres of arable up in somerset um he was using loads of chemicals very good chemical farmer you know was spending more and more money his profit always stayed the same but then one year his his wheat you know just collapsed you know he there was just no um you know he got very very low levels of actual you know quantities of wheat and he realized that basically his soils were just depleted whatever he did you know they they, they were just dead you know he put so many chemicals on them so then he started using Tamworth's pigs so what he's done is he he takes about 20 acres every year and plants a 36 um, plant cover crop grazes it with pigs for two years gets the whole system working again so he's gone from like one percent carbon content which is organic matter to six percent in a small period and now he's basically slowly you know you can always say he's organic now so he'll then get the soil working and then plant ancient wheat varieties he doesn't get as much um, volume of wheat but he does get a better price um but he's obviously spending a lot less on inputs but my this is one of those, I did one of those crazy, crazy sums looking at Fred system and I reckon if 20% of the arable farmers in this country, just 20% started using pigs as fertiliser instead of chemicals, then currently we've got 9 million pigs a year in factories. We could actually take all those pigs out of factories and put them on the land and regenerate it. And so there'd be no need for pigs in factories. You could then get chickens possibly out of factories and get them on the land. But if you, if you're using pigs to replace chemicals, it's going to take a little while. But I, I'm convinced the sums will stack up because then you could use sheep in those systems. You can use cows in those systems. And if, you're, if we do the sums, I'm, I'm convinced you can work it out so that we can still actually get meat at a very good price, um, but actually give these animals an incredible life and get the environment working, get the soils working.
0: So there needs to be an injection of, of, of investment from somewhere to, to, to enable that system to kind of kickstart because what you're describing is an initial boost of money and then after that actually it just starts to look after itself
1: i don't don't want to get too political but the government i'm sorry they just they've let us down for like say 30 or 40 years i don't think they're ever really going to help so we've got to do it on our own like fred for example he rather than buy fertilizer and chemicals he bought pigs like so every year he's got a massive great chemical bill um so instead of doing that he's basically now slowly using pigs so You know, the investment he would spend on chemicals, he would instead do with pigs. So, you know, all I've done is bought sheep um, and then sowed them, put up a little bit of fencing. But my financial outlay has been absolutely tired. I know I'm lucky enough to have land, but, you know, land is pretty cheap to rent. And I think in the next five years, land tenure is just going to change dramatically because there's a lot of very old farmers and there's going to be incentives, I think, to make them, encourage them to retire. So I think land is going to become... Cheaper and cheaper, you know the barriers for entry are going to be greatly reduced. So I, and the way I sort of feel is, but I genuinely think if I can do it, then anyone can. You know, they just got to work hard and read things and watch things. But when you make decisions a year ago and then you look at your land responded, I've just never felt a feeling as good as this. And I'm like, I just wish I'd done it when I was like twenty.
0: So what's the future? I mean, you're only a year into this project. How is it? How are you looking to develop?
1: So basically, I want to fence off my wood which hasn't been touched for 108 years pull out the trees get my red rubies in there um use the um, branches for tree hay to feed my sheep keep the sheep in the field but grazing way that improve improves um um plant biodiversity massively you know like that's that's the future is you know like, i think i can just push this like more and more and more but just the more i learn the more the better you get and i think farming should be a possibility they should just you know to try and just try and get there. You know, be entrepreneurial. And just find out what's happening and see if they could actually give it a go because it's it's possible. And the more of us doing it, the better we can build a supply chain. And you know, but you know, if you with like mail order and the websites and internet, you know, you can you can build a market for your produce. But the more of us doing it, the better that supply chain will get. We've got this wood. We've now I've got an experiment acre where I've let a mate of mine who's a grower just do what he wants. Um, we're now actually investigating getting breeds of sheep that produce good milk. And my gut feeling is, if you look at it, I'll, I'll, um, it's called um, Food of for the Forest. My gut feeling is if we can produce sheep milk from that wood, yeah, then we've got something that could be absolutely insane. So just to finish it on a cheese subject or a dairy subject.
0: trouble is you've just started something now, Matt. You can't finish it on a on a milk Comment <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. Since being introduced to the idea of silver pasture, because I'm my sort of drink of choice, if you like, is cider, and I've been fascinated to see all the stuff coming out of sort of Herefordshire, Somerset, that kind of wine style, beautiful stuff. The the idea for me of having uh you know an area of you know, sort of old style orchards rather than these kind of bush orchards, is sort of taller yeah. trees. With, with yeah. you know, sheep or goats or, or even cows grazing underneath and you've got a farm that produces cider and produces cheese and, you know, that's, prob- that's not a revolutionary idea, but to see more of that, you know, so something that actually is not just producing a raw material, but is actually producing a finished product. There are very few... Yeah products like cheese that go from a farm in Somerset all the way to say the Ledbury and don't aren't you know aren't fiddled with along the way somehow or cooked or whatever I think that's really exciting that you're investigating that end of things
1: it's just making something productive you know if you've got the tree canopy you know use the the floor and use the tree you know it's it's obvious that you're going to get a more productive system and don't just have stuff on the ground have some stuff vertical you know that's the whole beauty of um
0: well, particularly on an island nation. I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's making the
1: most of the space as well. When you see a sheep for the first time ever going to wood, it's obvious that that's what they're used to. Like suddenly the whole flock calms down and they just eat leaves like it's absolutely the most natural thing in the world. And it is. You know, you just realise that, Christ man, just having them bent down all day with their heads down eating, I don't think that's natural. <laughs> I think like they're, they're, they're designed to do both.
0: Matt Chatfield there. I I mean, brilliant. I love listening to him talk. Um, You'll notice I didn't speak very much in that episode and that is reflective. That's not a major edit. I was just wrapped, to be honest. It's just such a kind of it's taking all these systems that I've been talking to various people about almost to the nth degree. It's going so far down that kind of low input uh, system as to be almost just not quite, but almost releasing sheep into the wild and letting them get on with it. Obviously, there is much more to it than that, and Matt is controlling their environment in, in perhaps a, sort of as the lightest possible touch. But even what he was saying about the starlings, uh, you know, and the way that they grub through after the sheep have come, you know, and similar to to the way that certain regenerative agriculture practitioners use chickens, I thought that was really fascinating. Um, so yeah, to find out more, uh, I'd go to his Instagram. It's all there. It's the Cornwall Project at the Cornwall Project on Instagram. Join me next time for the Seliman podcast. The Seliman podcast is produced by me, Sam Wilkin. If you want to know more about Seliman, go to Seliman Sam on Instagram and Twitter or check out the website seliman.co.uk.